It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. We're rounding third and heading home, both to the holidays and to the new year. 2022 has been interesting, to say the least, and we'll take a look back at it after the first of 2023. Today, though, we're going to wrap up our gift ideas for cyclists with Dan Cavallari. Dan thought about it, and as you'll hear, has come up with a short list of things not to give a cyclist. I had to agree with him, as these are items that cyclists tend to want to get for themselves or already have far too many in their stash. Before we chat with Dan, though, I want to introduce you to Madeline Bonsma Fisher, or more rightly, Dr. Madeline Bonsma Fisher. As the day before our conversation, she had her convocation to complete her PhD in physics. It's similar to what we do here in the States to defend our thesis. Her work is in data analytics in the field of bacteria and virus interaction. I found it fascinating and would have focused on that, but as you may be wondering, what might that have to do with cycling? Well, it seems that as a bicycle commuter for 10 plus years and a member of Bike Ottawa, her data-oriented mind began musing about traffic and the stress of biking and walking and the inequities that occur when planning comes up against the reality of who lives where and the politics that often lead to inequities. She got hooked and pivoted to working on a project that has been funded by the University of Toronto Data Science Institute. Then there was her Twitter feed, and when I dove into that rabbit hole, I knew I wanted to talk with her. Hello, Madeline. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I saw some of the things you posted on one of those wonderful sites, on <laughs> Twitter, which who knows where that is these days. And uh -huh. I, I wanted to invite you to talk about your work. And then I started looking into you and I'm like, whoa, this is an interesting background that led you to what you're doing now. And I'm wondering how that happened. So let's talk a little bit about your background um, and then we'll get into the project you're working on now, which sounds fascinating to me too. Tell me about yourself. Yeah, so I just finished my PhD in physics and I was researching a really a biology question. So my, my research was in biophysics and I was studying how bacteria and viruses interact and how an immune system that bacteria have or that some bacteria have called CRISPR influences what happens to populations of bacteria and viruses. So it was all theoretical work. I did, uh, I made a model of these populations and ran simulations on a supercomputer and then looked at some experimental data from other groups. And CRISPR is a, a kind of almost a buzzwordy term at this point. It, it became famous within the last 10 years as a genome editing tool. So my research was not not having to do with genome editing uh, in particular, but so CRISPR is, is uh, originally an immune system in bacteria. And you can think of it kind of like our immune system where you know we all know very well these days, you get infection, you get a vaccine, your body produces antibodies 
that recognize that infection if it returns in the future. And it turns out that bacteria also have an adaptive immune system that can do kind of a similar thing. So a virus that infects a bacteria, if they have a CRISPR system, the bacteria can take a piece of DNA from the virus, store it in its own DNA, and then use it as like a series of mugshots of viruses that have infected it before. And then they use these pieces to just basically match virus DNA from feature infecting viruses. And if they bind together because they match, then the bacteria can cut the virus DNA and destroy it and prevent it from infecting it. And the connection to genome editing here is that um, <laughs> bacteria, so one of the researchers that was studying CRISPR in bacteria um, had the idea that you could supply this system with not just virus DNA, but any piece of DNA you want, and it would go and find that DNA and cut it there, which is really the, the main challenge of genome editing is trying to cut DNA very precisely so you can reshape it and, and re, uh, reassemble it in the way that you want. So that's why it became really popular is because of this like technology application. But my research was very much more on the fundamental side of how it works in its kind of natural bacterial environment. So I have a, a quick question that has nothing to do with bicycling whatsoever. And that is about what you just said. Is it possible that you could train bacteria to destroy virus? Because viruses are immune to antibiotics, right? Uh, yeah, so bacteria, there's a bacteria are the ones that you would use antibiotics on. Right. Yes, this is actually um, a newish, uh, um, an area of research that's becoming much more popular with antibiotic resistance, like you said. So, you know, up until very recently, we've relied very heavily on antibiotics to treat bacterial infections. Um, and there have been, there was in the past some interest in something called phage therapy, which is using uh, viruses that infect bacteria, which are called phages, to kill bacteria, which would do exactly what you said, treat bacterial infections. There was kind of some big technical challenges, maybe some political things happening when this was being done, you know, 50 years ago. But nowadays, people are, again, kind of interested in other applications for treating infections with, with viruses. Let me reintroduce you, and then we're going to talk about how what you were doing then somehow pivoted to what you're doing now. We're speaking with Madeline Bonsma Fisher. She is a Data Sciences Institute postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto. And I don't know this person you're working with, Dr. Shoshana Sachs and Dr. Timothy Chan, and your research is focusing on optimizing the locations of bicycle infrastructure to provide equitable access. And you're going to say, how did you get from CRISPR to bicycle infrastructure, which seems like a, a leap that just got to that fork in the road and took it? Yeah. Um, I got interested in, in cycling in the way that I think many people do, which is by doing it. I had been commuting and kind of getting around by bike for about a decade when I started thinking more about kind of the larger systems involved in active transportation and kind of the political climate that leads to a good environment for cycling and walking or not. And I, I got involved with Bike Ottawa, which is an advocacy organization in, in Ottawa where I live. Um, and I started volunteering with their data working group. So they have a group of volunteers that does some kind of cool data projects relating to cycling in Ottawa. And so through this volunteer work, I started to think, oh, maybe this is like an application for some of the technical skills that I learned during my PhD in this very unrelated field of biophysics. Um, and I, I kind of occurred to me for the first time that maybe I could, I could work, I could find work in this space that I was becoming really passionate about because I found myself just really thinking about, you know, 
uh, urban planning and the built environment and transportation kind of all the time, right? It's hard not to think about it when you're just walking around and biking around and looking at the city and you think, oh my goodness, like there's so much space for cars and it's actually really terrible to try to get around on foot and, and things like that. So I was becoming more, I'll use the word radicalized because I think it was kind of like a really, a big shift in the way I saw the world that started slowly and then really picked up over the last couple of years. And yeah, that's how I decided to take that leap into a into a bit of a career change. So that's really interesting because I've been in the bicycle space for years, you know, decades, really. But this whole idea of sustainability and urban planning and better infrastructure for cycling and walking has been in, you know, I've been doing the podcast for over 12 years, but the last two years, I've really honed in on people who are doing the work you're doing. And I have so much admiration for the new urban planners and the way they're thinking compared to the people who design parking lots and freeways. You know? <laughs> so um, the name of your current project is Equitable Prioritization of Active Transportation Infrastructure in Canadian Cities. You want to break that down a little for me? Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. It is. Um, this, this came about because I was looking at the work of my now supervisor, uh, Dr. Shoshana Sachs, and her group uh, had done some interesting work in Toronto where they looked at, they made a, they looked at a map of Toronto and looked at all of the roads and paths and ranked every street and path with a scale of one to four of the level of stress for how comfortable you would feel while biking on there. So it's called level of traffic stress, this rating system. It was developed about 20 years ago by another group, maybe 10 years ago, let's say 10 years ago. And the, the idea is that if you look at this map and if you look at how you would get from point A to point B, um, most people who are going to be cycling would not be comfortable biking on a high stress road. High stress is things like four lanes and really fast traffic and no bike infrastructure. And so what they did was they looked at, looked at all the different kinds of origins of the destinations across the city and whether you could get between them using only low stress, level one and two stress uh, roads and paths. And they then started looking at what happened when you add bike infrastructure. So, for instance, in Toronto, uh, in the early months of 2020, they added about 20 kilometers of new cycling infrastructure, uh, kind of in response to the pandemic. And they they had an interesting paper that looked at the impact of this infrastructure in terms of improving accessibility. So, how much more, uh, how many more people could access jobs and services and grocery stores and parks? Um, on a on a safe or not necessarily safe, but low stress cycling network than previously. Um, I thought this was a really cool way to approach this this question of how well is infrastructure serving people, practically how well are people actually able to get around using the roads and, and paths that we have. And then the kind of next part that we're going to be looking at going forward is can we use this kind of measurement to understand how uh, how equitably infrastructure is distributed and access to infrastructure is distributed. And then can we use that to say, uh, where would be the most fair and efficient place to add new infrastructure to increase accessibility to services and opportunities? So who underwrote this project, this equitable prioritization of active transportation project? Uh, do you mean like, what's the kind of organization structure? Yes. I mean, where where did this... Uh, project come from and who is fu who's funding it? Yeah, so the funding is through a new institute called the Data Science Institute at the University of Toronto. This was created last year, so it's a new a new kind of cross disciplinary collaboration program, um, and they have a lot of funding for various projects. And they issued a call for for postdoctoral fellowships, which is what I'm doing. And you could propose really anything you wanted, 
that had to do with data science and either reproducibility or inequity. Those were the two main thematic focuses. So I was already kind of the wheels were already turning for me about whether I could do some data science work related to cycling. And when I found my supervisor Shoshana's papers, I got really excited and I thought this could be a project that we could do together. So it was the the proposal was developed uh, with my supervisor Shoshana, my supervisor Tim, and a student that they have named Bo Lin, who's done a lot of this work. So uh, the four of us together developed this proposal and now it's being funded by the Data Science Institute. So what is the length of time and what are you hoping to um, to do with the project? What are the goals of the project, I guess, is the mm-hmm. right question. Yeah, so it's two years of funding. So they, they currently, the group, like when I started, they had just been finishing a method to optimize where new infrastructure should be placed based on this level of traffic stress classification and using accessibility to opportunities. Um, so that part has is... They've got a proof of concept working. So our goals are now to um, develop a way to do this for other cities efficiently if we can. So, you know, we did this just for Toronto, but we love to try this on other cities in Canada and see how, what the differences are and things like that. And my specific focus will be is looking at how this all connects with equity and how we can, what different measures of equity or different kind of ways of capturing differences in equity, both in terms of the features you're measuring, like income, uh, gender, disability, age, that kind of thing, as well as what is the measurement of fairness? So are you are you trying to minimize the gaps between all different people? Or are you trying to set a minimum threshold for all people to meet? Those are kind of different conceptual ideas of equity. So um, we want to kind of try to map out if you include all these different definitions or pick and choose different ones, what does that look like in terms of the optimal result that you get? So let me try to rephrase that a little bit. So does trying to prioritize equity or trying to prioritize fair distribution of infrastructure change your optimal answer for infrastructure compared to just trying to provide the overall highest level of accessibility? Have you come to any conclusions yet? I know it's new, but do you have ideas of what you think you're going to find out? Yeah, I can say a few things based on what other people have already done in this space. So other groups are already looking at equity in cities and in terms of um, cycling and walking and active transportation. And one thing I can say is that the the situation varies a lot from city to city. Um, This will be true across cities in Canada, between say Canada and the US, between different cities in the US. There's a whole kind of history of how uh, cities are arranged spatially that has a lot to do with um, historical politics and historical lines of inequity and marginalization. So for instance, a pattern that's common in many North American cities is that in the kind of mostly car dominated area of maybe the 60s and 70s, you would have wealthier people, typically white people living in kind of the suburban exterior edges of cities and downtowns are becoming more marginalized. And over the last 20 years, that trend is sort of reversing a little bit. And now there's this new, there's different kind of changing patterns of gentrification and distribution in cities. So when you look at something like where is cycling infrastructure distributed and who is it serving, these kind of where a city is in this flux is going to change your answer. Um, and it's really it's really hard to say. You can't say anything general like, oh, um, cycling infrastructure across the board serves wealthy people more than poor people. That's not something that we're going to find because we know that there's many complex uh, relationships between all of these spatial distributions. For sure. Let me reintroduce you once again. 
We're speaking with Madeline Bonsma-Fisher. She is the data science, we're going to go through this again. She's the Data Sciences Institute postdoctoral fellow, the University of Toronto. She's working on this really interesting project. I'm finding it fascinating. I, I look at equity and how you might define equity and also the changing of cities where people are moving back into the cities and that may or may not be driving more sustainable bike paths, protected bike lanes, as opposed to building a freeway right through a, you know, a neighborhood, which of course people did that for years. And that tended to marginalize certain people on the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks, if you want to use that. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be changing. Of course, you know, we had a big election here. I don't even want to get into the um, nuts <laughs> and bolts of that, but I'm looking at some of the things like the infrastructure bill that was passed uh, in the United States and may or may not be helping people. Are you going to be able to go to the government in Canada and say, this is what we found and this is the direction we think you might want to go? Or are you going to go to urban planners and start there? Where will the project go as you continue to uh, sort of un you know, unfold it and and keep going with the, the data? That's a really good question. Um, in my previous life, in my PhD research, it was very kind of fundamental removed from applications. So there was never a question of who are we actually going to bring this to for knowledge transfer. It was more just, you know, do your study, write a paper, and people will just kind of think about it. And it'll slowly percolate maybe into other areas. But the group that I'm working with now, my supervisor, Shoshana Sachs, um, has some connections at the city of Toronto. So they they do talk a lot with staff at the city and um, discuss things like where infrastructure is being planned. There has been a lot of kind of back and forth that way. So that's one of the first um, connections we go to, I believe, is, is we um, run ideas by them and we kind of like, yeah, there's a lot of collaboration there already. So where do you think you're going in two years? Are you, apparently you like this well enough. Um, do you see yourself getting more into urban planning or sticking with data? Um, that's a, yeah. So I'm not sure this is, this is a really new field for me on, on the, on the actual work side of things. So I, I could see myself being interested in working with a city, um, on, on analyzing data related to transportation. Um, these teams exist in different cities in, in Canada. So that would be something I'd be interested in. Um, I haven't ruled out, you know, continuing on the academic route. If, if I really like this, there might be more opportunities for for research in this area as well. So we've been talking basically about bike infrastructure, but one of the things I think that needs to work hand in hand with that is public transport. Are you doing anything or somehow dovetailing the work you're doing with um, uh, bike infrastructure with any of the transport? Cause I remember when we were, my daughter went to York university um, okay. for, for her, her masters. And I remember going up there and the buses are like, or maybe it's the train. I don't know. Something goes right down the street, you know, and there's a sidewalk next to it. And, you know, we were very unused to seeing the kind of um, infrastructure there was for public transportation. Because yeah. it's very spotty here in Northeast Ohio, but I think it's more, right. you know, it's better in Toronto. So what yeah. do you think about that? Yeah. Toronto has some of the, the most used bus lines in North America, I think. So it has a really um, highly used transit system for sure. Um, there's absolutely an important connection between cycling and transit. And something that my group has done and that we'll probably keep doing is looking at 
um, accessibility to transit stations in the cycling network. So one way to measure how much access people have in the combination of cycling and transit is saying, can people access you know, a subway station within a 30 minute bike ride, maybe even a shorter bike ride? And can they do this on low stress routes? That's one way to measure how effective your, your infrastructure is. And I think this is an area that the city of Toronto, for instance, is also interested in in pushing going forward is that we can combine cycling and transit to kind of expand the, the reach of transit to more people. Which would also help to reduce some of the greenhouse gas of cars and have fewer cars. Is anybody talking about limiting cars in Toronto? Like in, in the um, downtown space, like they've done in London and Paris and a few other European cities. The conversation is not happening on a large scale in Toronto, I don't think. But slowly over time, it happens. Like um, the University of Toronto is, the campus is right downtown Toronto. And I, I know they have plans to slowly pedestrianize more and more streets within the kind of bounds of the campus over time. There's also been talk of introducing tolls on the major highway that goes through Toronto, although that is kind of on permanent pause right now, but that's the kind of, yeah. So <laughs> it's always a struggle to get these things. Right. Yeah, but that's the kind of thing that people are talking about. I wanted to say one more thing though about um, reducing the reliance on vehicles in the connection with transit and biking. Uh, Toronto has a, a regional train system called Go Transit, which serves a lot of the, serves Toronto and a lot of kind of surrounding areas. And um, in the, when Go Transit was first being kind of built out, it was very much like a, a car replacement service where it was intended that people would drive to the Go station get on the train and then get off in downtown Toronto or wherever they were going, mostly downtown Toronto. Um, and it's it's clear that this was the intent because things like bike infrastructure is really terrible around a lot of GO stations. So it's not even like, you know, it's not, people aren't really supposed to bike there or it's not expected that people will. My brother just started a job um, in a surrounding city of Toronto where he bikes to the GO station, takes the GO train and then bikes from the GO train to his job. So it should be possible for more people to do this. And I think if it was safe, people would definitely do it. Yes. And I think all of the buses and trains here in Northeast Ohio either have bike racks on the front of the bus or you can take the bike on the train. But there aren't enough buses and trains that go everywhere. You know, yeah. we're, we're mm -hmm. a really sprawled out city. Well, this has just been fascinating. I intend to continue to follow what you're doing. How can my listeners follow some of the work you're doing uh, with this data study? Updates will take place on social media. So I have a Twitter account and a Mastodon account that I update pretty regularly. So my username there is at uh, mbonsma. And on Mastodon, it's at mbonsma at mastodon.social. We've been speaking with Madeline Bonsma Fisher. Um, she's in, are you in Toronto or are you in Ottawa? Where are you based? Um, I live in Ottawa right now. I wish I had talked more about Ottawa because it's an amazing place. Um, so I understand. We can, you know, we can, you can say some things about Ottawa if you like. We have yeah. Fun. Okay, sure. Yeah. So I, yeah, I live in Ottawa. I've lived here for about three years. I will be moving back to Toronto, which is where I moved to Ottawa from in the spring. So I feel, yeah, eventually I'll be moving back to Toronto, but is uh, Ottawa a better biking city than Toronto? Um, I have found it to be better. That has been my experience. The thing that Ottawa that has that makes it great for biking is a very well-connected network of paths that are kind of meant to be recreational, but of course people use them for transportation because they follow things like the river, which goes into downtown and that kind of thing. There's an interesting kind of cultural 
maybe disconnect between the government agency that runs these paths and creates these paths and the people who use them. You know, in the eyes of the government, it's still a recreational service primarily. And so it's been a lot of advocacy work on the part of organizations like Bike Ottawa and other advocates to kind of keep reminding the government that people do bike for transportation. And uh, over the years, it's gotten a lot better. So now, for instance, a lot of these paths are plowed in the winter, so they are quite usable year round, which is really great. That's always been a bit of a struggle is to kind of convince people that Ottawa can be a place people bike in the winter. So just to give you some hope for the future, (laughs) I can remember when some of the plans that have now come to fruition or which are just about finished here in Northeast Ohio started as long as 40 years ago. So I think, well, but I think things are accelerating right now so that plans that took 30 or 40 years beginning back in the 80s and 90s are only taking much shorter periods of time, both from funding and also from interest. Now, I just think that the interest and the number of people who want to see protected bike lanes, better connections among paths, all of that uh, has grown so that there's a voice. Mm -hmm. And that voice is being listened to by people like mayors and urban planners. So I I can appreciate that people want to work in that space. And and I'm happy to see what's happening. I probably won't live to see it all, (laughs) although I'd love to. I really appreciate you talking with me today. I think your work is fascinating. I can't wait to see what you come up with going forward. And again, uh, we've been speaking with Madeline Bonsma-Fisher. Thank you so much. I guess it's Dr. Bonsma-Fisher. Oh, thank you. I had my convocation yesterday. (laughs) You what? I had my convocation yesterday. Congratulations. Oh, that's wonderful. That is so nice. Thank you again. I hope you have a great day. Thanks. You too. Okay. My thanks to Madeline for taking time to talk with me. You can follow her at mbonsma on Twitter and at mbonsma at mastodon.social. We'll link her work on our website also. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll hear what the slow guy on the fast ride has to say about gifting this week. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm William Shatner, I've been around a long time, but I'm truly humbled when I see the real battles our brave, paralyzed veterans have faced defending our freedom. I was on a routine patrol, and uh, we were in the desert of Kuwait, and the vehicle flipped and landed on top of me, which uh, left me paralyzed from the waist down. Okay, folks, this, this, this is heroism. That's why I'm proud to support Paralyzed Veterans of America. Go to pva.org to learn how you can make a difference. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. So it's time to welcome Dan Cavallari back for what will be our final show about gift giving for cyclists this year. I thought we'd talk about gifts not worth getting, but Dan put a much better spin on it with gifts that you probably don't want someone to get for you because you have a very specific idea about them. Here's what he has to say. We are back with Dan Cavallari for week three. And we've got a really interesting title to our gift giving this week. Things you absolutely do not need and maybe you might not want. Hi, Dan. How are you? 
I'm well. How are you, Diane? I am well. It's only been a few days since we spoke, but we're getting closer to the holidays and people do last minute things. Mm-hmm. Let's not give them ideas that they want, don't want. I mean, I think people will go and become really, really desperate toward the end of shopping and they'll just mm-hmm. buy anything. So let's make sure that they buy something that they do want. What are some things you don't want them to buy? Well, I thought of this question in terms of what you would not want to buy for someone else, uh, because I think gift giving can be tricky, right? You know, and and everybody in my life anyway will say, "Oh, Dan, you're a cyclist, so you're probably going to love this." Okay, <laughs> <laughs> here's some things you should not buy for the person in your life who is a cyclist. Uh, first and foremost, uh, probably stay away from anything like lubes, uh, greases, things like that. Not that your your person in your life doesn't need that stuff, but most people have a preference to what they use and don't use. So a lot of that stuff's just going to end up on the shelf, uh, wasting space. And frankly, a lot of it is pretty caustic for the environment. So you don't want to just buy something that's not only not useful for the person that you're buying for, but also is just going to be bad for the environment and take up space. So I think I would, it's great advice. Yeah. Really good advice. So yeah. I, would stay, I stay away from lubes and things like that. Anything that's really a specific personal choice. Okay. Um, in that same vein, nutrition, uh, nutrition is another highly personal choice. And, you know, I like specific types of bike nutrition and I loathe others (laughs) and nothing would bum me out. Yeah, I have my, uh, my don't you even get that near me. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, it's, it's such a personal choice, but I would say, you know, don't, don't buy something that is again, just going to take up space on the shelf and is going to go uneaten. Uh, people have very personal choices when it comes to nutrition. It's best left to them uh, to choose what they are eating. One other thing about nutrition, which people may or may not think about, some people have really bad allergies. Yeah. And some people also have real serious issues with certain things that you that a lot of people will say, oh, I love this. It really works for me. And then you find out it really doesn't agree with you. So mm-hmm. you need to test for your own nutrition uh, options to make sure that they work for you. Yeah. I think this is another great piece of it. So we have lubes and greases and we have nutrition. What else? This is great. I have two more. Okay. Uh, so one is in that, again, that same vein of personal choice, uh, don't get your friends or your, your significant other uh, sight unseen. Don't get them grips or saddles. And those are touch points. So no, nothing will ruin a ride faster than an uncomfortable saddle. And so, I mean, we go through, if you're a cyclist and you know cyclists, we go through fits, we go through, uh, you know, endless changes of saddles to find the one that is right for us. If you bought me one and put it under the tree, I absolutely love you for trying, but I would return it immediately. Uh, this is another personal choice. Grips are another one uh, in, you know, people like to give these as gifts because they're small, they're relatively inexpensive, but again, I have a a grip that I really like, and that's the one I'm going to use. Um, And so bar tape is kind of the same way. I think a lot of people have a a preference and, you know, we're, we're cyclists, we're really weird. (laughs) We're very strange about where our allegiances lie. And I think people have developed a sense of what grips and uh, and tape they like, and that is what they're sticking with. Uh, you can always take that chance and be like, hey, try this new thing. Uh, but generally speaking, touch points are things you should stay away from giving as a gift. I think that's a great idea. I, it takes a long time to find the saddle that works. I mean, after years and years and years, I'm finally on a Brooks that I love. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it was like, wow. You know, and my husband tried to convince me to try it long before. Because mm-hmm. he that's what he rides are all Brooks saddles. So yeah, yeah. It's yeah. perfect. Perfect. All right. Anything else? Yeah, one more. Okay. I, you know, Diane, you've been a you've been a cyclist a long, long time. So I'm yeah. sure at some point, at some holiday, somebody has given you this gift. And at first it's kind of like, yeah, this is great. And then by the time you get like the seventh or eighth one, you're like, oh good God. Uh I would not buy your favorite cyclist a coffee table book about bikes. <laughs> I I have so many and I don't want any more. <laughs> and, 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 and to be fair, I mean, some people might ask for that, might like that. And, you know, there's lots of good ones out there, but I have so many of them. And at this point in my life, I know what I like. Uh, I know what I want. And, and most of those just end up taking up space. They do. They do. And of course, being somebody who has reviewed, I can't even tell you how many hundreds of books uh, and I, so here, here is something as a suggestion, mm-hmm. you know, we've been doing along with our gift giving, uh, I mean, gift receiving gift giving, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, a charitable year in when people do that for the cyclist him, him or herself who wants to give something away. And there's a local bookshop here, a, a, an independent local bookshop that's been around for a long, long time. They have for my podcast, outspoken cyclist, they have uh, an outspoken cyclist table and all of the books that I get that I read and I review, um, I donate to them because, cool. you know, I, I know, and it, you know, it gives a little bit of a plug for the podcast and it gives yeah. them. Yeah. So that's, and just to give them a little bit of a plug, Max Backs paperbacks, just a great little store on Coventry in, in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Well, these are all great suggestions again. So let me ask you a personal question. What are you doing for the holidays? So funny enough, we're going to New York City, uh, my family and I, uh, because last year we had this trip scheduled and COVID shut it down for us. Uh, so we're we're trying, uh, we're making attempt number two. My daughter's never been to New York City. I spent a lot of time there uh, in my my back my history, and so I'm excited to go back. How old's your daughter? She's she's going to turn eight in a couple of days. You know, I think my parents took my sister and and me, my sister and I, to New York City. I think we were 10 and 11, you know, we were only 15 months apart. And mm-hmm. I can remember all she wanted every place we went and we went to some really nice restaurants was a cheeseburger <laughs> and fries. And my parents got so <laughs> disgusted yeah. with the yeah. whole thing. But yeah. of course, New York City's just awesome. You have anything, oh, anything special you're going to do while you're there? Well, so we had planned to see the Rockettes last year, which actually I've never seen in person. Oh, yeah, they're fun. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you want to hear, if, uh, if you have time, of sure. a quick funny story about my daughter and travel. So, you know, I travel a lot for work and and I'm I'm fortunate in that way that, you know, I get to see all these wonderful, beautiful places. And this past year, uh, it was a possibility that I was going to be heading to the Giro. Uh, and I said to my wife, let's let's meet in, in Venice after I'm done working. We can and Lucy can see the Lucy's my daughter. Lucy can see Venice and the canals and everything. So we said to my seven year old daughter, I said, Lucy, do you want to go to Venice and see the canals and and you know italian food and blah, blah blah and she she looks at me for a moment in silence and she says i want to go to paris <laughs> i said wait a minute i just offered she's to fly seven. you around the world she's seven and she <laughs> yeah. wants to go to paris so what do you want to go to paris for she goes i want a good croissant <laughs> oh my goodness 
Uh, I think you have a preco- precocious child there, young man. Yes, yes. That's yes. great. Number what a six. great story. Well, I hope you and your family do have a wonderful holiday. Thank you for spending time with me again, talking about things that people shouldn't get for other people. I think that's a great idea. And maybe it'll give some people uh, um, ideas about what not to do, along with the other two shows we did with people, with things people might want. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that holidays get back to normal this year. That would be nice. You know, that would be nice. Dan Cavallari, Slow Guy on a Fast Ride, and it's slowguyonafastride.com. You need to listen to his podcast. What's up on your podcast recently? Uh, just actually the one that's going to come up uh, next next week. I don't know when this is airing, but uh, Alchemy Bicycles founder Ryan Canazaro is going to be joining me. Uh, and we just had Rob Inaudi, who's starting a new uh, business called BikeList.com, where you can sell all your your used bike equipment. Wow. Maybe a little competition for the other company? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? We like competition. Dan, yeah. thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Same to you, Diane. Thank you. All right. Take care. My thanks to Dan for all the great advice he's offered over the past three episodes of the podcast. Remember to check out his show at slowguyonthefastride.com and tune in on Friday afternoons if you'd like to sip a bit of whiskey with him and his buddies at thepracticalstill.com. My thanks again to Madeline Bonsma Fisher for joining me. I plan to check in with her again as her research continues. On the next episode of the show, you'll meet titanium frame builder Darren Crisp. He's from Texas, but has lived and worked in Italy for several decades. His story is a bit different from many of the builders we've spoken with over the years, and I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you for listening today. Remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and leave a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, where each episode is accompanied by show notes and links. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app, too. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay well, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.